nice to see you all uh, and uh, welcome you here to Journey. We're working on uh, a series based on uh, bringing the light of Scripture into a discussion about topics related to the shack, and uh, so we're glad that you're here. And I'm kind of pinch-hitting. Uh, if you were here last weekend, uh, Brian, just our lead pastor, did a fabulous job, but he was really sick, and uh, he's really battled all week, and uh, so I, believe me, I wish he were here, but uh, <laughs> anyway, here I am, and, uh, and I can't wait to hear what I'm going to say, so <laughs> we'll, we'll hear it first together, so uh, anyway. If uh, <laughs> think it's a joke, don't you? <laughs> uh, if uh, if you're a guest here and you haven't been kind of reading the shack, the shack is a fictional story. It's a novel written by a man at at the beginning. He wrote it just for his children, so they would grapple with and understand some of the issues he was working with uh, as a as a Christ follower. It uh, kind of caught on. It uh, went from being being just a few copies in a garage until it began to make the New York Times bestseller list and uh, became a cultural phenomena and now has sold hundreds of thousands of copies. So the kind of the title we're working off tonight is uh, Why Churches and Believers Should Be Interfacing, Interacting, Reflecting on the Shack. But actually, it's 10 reasons I'm reading it. And you can just kind of listen in. And uh, we're going to talk about some of the things Brian had mentioned, like we'll touch on the Trinity tonight and what God says about the Trinity and how we can look at the Trinity, which is the nature of God. And uh, so why don't we pray? Lord, give us uh, insight tonight into things you want to tell us that will give us life and uh, bring life to us. Show us how you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, ten reasons, really, why I'm reading The Shack. I became a Christ follower when I was 18, and so I've been walking with him for about 40 years, and uh, when it was first brought up to read this book, and I started to dive into it, if you're reading it, it's kind of a tough, tough book. It's about a father who's suffering a, a great sadness because on a camping trip, his small daughter was abducted and murdered. He gets an invitation, it appears from the Lord, written in a note, to meet him at the shack where his daughter had been killed. And there he encounters God. And uh, I'm reading it for a number of reasons. So here's the first one. I'm reading it because it's a cultural phenomenon. And uh, I think it's good for me to read. Christianity sometimes functions like we all got tuning forks, and we're just trying to tune the piano and make sure everything's always in key. You know, ding, 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 ding. So nobody ever hears the music of the gospel. All they hear is us hitting a note to make sure the the key's right. But if you want to speak to a culture, you must speak in their language using their symbols. Missionaries know that. If you're going to be a missionary to Bolivia, where my brother-in-law was for 17 years, he didn't go around being irritated because they didn't respond to English. The Amara language 
in Bolivia, spoken by the Amara Indians, is a particularly difficult language for Caucasians to learn. It's very guttural. It sits way back in the back of the throat. You kind of throw sounds out. Some people are never able to, able to master it. And yet, they kept sending the missionaries to school to grapple with, to learn, to gain a command of the Amara language because they knew if you want to speak to the Amara Indians, you have to honor them enough to speak in their language. Now, this will seem peculiar to some of you, but there was a time when the conservative church movement really thought going to movies wasn't a very good thing. In fact, I grew up in a conservative, biblical background where almost nobody I knew attended a theater. But you could often hear going to movies mentioned in sermons and never in a positive way. In that era, there was one man who decided that if the movie industry was going to be part of the cultural reality of this nation, that people needed to hear the gospel through that medium. And his name was Billy Graham. And he took flack. He took it from every direction when he decided to take people like Stuart Hamlin, who was a country singer and a, and a movie star, and put him into a movie and began to create movies. He created his own division of the Billy Graham Association called Worldwide Pictures. And then, when I was a teenager, he decided he was actually going to take those movies into the theater. And all over the United States, there were church councils having meetings. <laughs> about purity. About whether they should participate when the Restless One, starring Kim Darby, who later was in True Grit with John Wayne, when the Restless Ones was going, was going to come to Williston, North Dakota, should churches participate and encourage people to go. But Billy Graham knew if you want to speak to people with respect, you learn their language and you use their symbols. And God the Father knew it because that's what the incarnation and the Christian story is. It's God adapting himself to our forms, our language, and our symbols in order to communicate to us the love of the Heavenly Father. Now let me talk about politics for a little bit. <laughs> so, like, I'm kind of a political nut. I like to watch. I had a bunch of meetings during the day of the inauguration, so I got home and turned on TV at midnight and watched it to three in the morning just to say I'd been there, you know. And uh, so this isn't about who voted for who. This is about, uh, this is about uh, management of campaigns. I grew up in Williston, North Dakota, so my idea of a great time was to get 50 cents and go into a, going to Williston 18 miles away and not spend it all in one place. 
But if you're under 35, it's likely that you not only see yourselves as a citizen of the United States, you see yourself as a citizen of the world. I have three children, 32, 30, and 28. All of them have lived extensively in other countries. And so if I'm going to campaign in America and I'm interested in the 35 and under vote, I will fashion a message that shows that I'm interested in being a citizen of the world. And then, so I went to this little workshop from a professor up at MSU, and he, he's talking about technology. He says, you and I, people my age, we use it as a tool. He said, if you're under 30, it's how you breathe. So he said, you stand outside of any one of those classrooms, and you wait for the classes to be over, and out as, as one come 300 students, and as they step out the door... They grab this small thing and they flip it open. And 300 are flipped open all at the same time. Now, if you listen in on the conversations, you hear things like, yeah, I just got out of class, see you later. You know? Nothing about nuclear disarmament. I mean, there's no heavy discussions going on. They breathe that way. And so if I want somebody under 30 to vote for me, I will use the technology that is part of how they breathe. I'm reading the shack because it's part of a cultural phenomena, and I want my faith to be interacting and interfacing with that cultural reality. Second reason I'm reading it is because the Bible, I see the Bible, and Pastor Brian mentioned this, not as a trunk. Filled with truth, I have to protect. But as a window that helps me look at the world. And so I've got the scriptures and, and something occurs in my culture and my world. And I let the light of that shine on that. And it gives me perspective. So, so like someone might say, how do you hear the voice of the Lord? Well, you study the Word. The Bible tells us what God wants. I say, if that's your answer, then you're not reading the Bible. Because the Bible tells me that God has all kinds of ways to talk to me. From a burning bush to a vision of a sheet filled with animals that were considered unclean. And the list goes on. And so I get to look through the Bible as a window and see what's going on in my world. Number three, because the themes of the shack are common to man. Guilt, forgiveness, revenge, despair, depression. These are things that we all carry. Does God have something to say about them? Now catch this. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian writer, and his friend J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, felt that often myth and story are far better communicators of truth than our propositions. 
So when Jesus wanted us to understand the love of the Father, he tells us the story of a prodigal son and a father who had lost him. And is there no more tender picture in the New Testament than an old man scanning the horizon as the sun sets, wondering if someday at the top of that horizon he'll see a lone figure walking back home. And on one day, after years of hope, he sees that figure. And he can tell by the gate, by the walk, that it is his son. And the Bible tells us that that old man started to run. That's the tool God uses to communicate to us how he loves us. An old man running for a son he had lost. Myth and story become great tools to communicate to us. And to communicate to me what God's thinking and how he feels about me and what he wants to say to me. Fourth one is the incarnational nature of the gospel. And uh, all right, now this is the one. I asked Brian, I said, all right, now, you, you got a manuscript ready? I'll just deliver your manuscript. He says, no. I said, well, you got a few notes. I said, no. I said, well, what do you got? He says, well, I, I got an idea. So <laughs> this is it. This is his, uh, we're, <laughs> we're going to, we're going to throw in his idea because he said I'd promised him we'd say something about the Trinity. So uh, we're, we're working off Brian's idea. So next time you see him, would you say, hey, you had a great idea. Did you do that for me? Because he'll be, he'll be happy about that. Um, the incarnational nature of the gospel. In, in, the, in the shack, God shows up as a Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, except the Father is a large black woman who's named Papa. And Jesus is a Middle Eastern man named Elusia. And the Holy Spirit uh, is a woman named Sarayu. Now granted, that may not have been the pictures we'd come to church with. But you know, one of the first things that needed to change when I became a Christ follower in my life was the bad picture I had of God. I needed somebody to help me have a different picture. I saw God as a short-tempered perfectionist who was always looking for a reason not to like me. And there were plenty of those. Difficult to please. And so when I read through the shack and this phrase, at first you catch it, he's saying about one person, yeah, I'm especially fond of him. You think maybe he has a favorite. But that phrase keeps showing up again and again until you realize 
What he's really saying is he's especially fond of all of us. Aren't there some of us sitting here tonight that need to hear the Lord saying in the face of where you've been, what you've been thinking, perhaps even something you've done, that you need to hear the Lord say to you, I'm, I'm especially fond of you. And to let that sink in, that if it was you topping the horizon, he would be running for you because he's so glad to see you. The Bible tells us that God is a trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And uh, in, the, in one section here in, uh, in the shack, he talks about uh, God not really having a hierarchy. You know, we read about how the Father asked the Son to go to earth. But I wonder, in heaven, is there really a hierarchy? Because in the theology books, it'll tell us that the trinity... Is of God is three in one, totally equal, of the same substance. Now, before we get very far in that, I, I'm not sure it matters what we think. See, how, in, how are you and I going to understand the mechanics of the nature of God? So, let me give you an illustration of, of, of this. Now, my personal opinion is, I, 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 my guess is that in heaven, in eternity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal. It's kind of a flat government. The reason they shift is in order to interface with us in a fallen world. But, but having said that, I looked up this question because it's always kind of intrigued me on uh, physlink.com, uh, which is a physics and astronomy uh, uh, online link. Um, here was the question, how do we see things upright if the image formed in the retina in our eye is an inverted one? The retina perceives things in an inverted way. So when my eyeball sees you, you're all upside down. Right. So he's puzzled me. So I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just check this out. So I'm going to read you the answer, all right? Get your pens ready. It's not long, but it, it makes a point. It is true that the images formed on your retina are upside down. It is also true that most people have two eyes and therefore two retinas. Why then don't you see two distinct images? For the same reason that you don't see everything upside down. One of the most remarkable tools of the brain is hard at work for us on this task. Processing visual information is very complex. It takes up a relatively large portion of the brain compared to other senses. This is because your brain performs several tasks to make the images easier to see. One, of course, is combining the two images, which is helped by the corpus callosum. Are you with me? <laughs> All right. The tiny part of your brain which joins the two big hemispheres, etc., etc., etc. They actually did a test. They gave people eyeglasses that actually put you upright 
ahead of your image catching the eye, you know what happened? After, when they first put them on, uh, the brain was confused, and after a couple days, the brain shifted, and you were upright again. And then, after the brain shifted, they took the glasses off, and for a day, the brain was confused, and then the brain shifted, and you were inverted again. Isn't that amazing? Now, the reason I write this to, read this to you is because you and I really, there's no way for us to actually know the mechanics of the nature of God. Any more than I can fully understand the mechanics of this. I can't understand the mechanics of it, but I can understand the impact of it and the importance of it. Are you with me? So we think of God. Is, is there a hierarchy? And how does he work? And how does this thing about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit connect? And I, I, can, I can work on some scripture and write out a series of propositions, but even when I'm all done, there's a big chunk of mystery in there because I can't quite grasp the mechanics But here's what I can grasp. I can grasp that God consistently presents himself in creative ways in in order to interface with you and me. He consistently presents himself in creative ways in order to interface with you and me. I can grasp another thing. It is the nature of God to be in community. Usually the sicker someone gets, the more isolated they get. Here's a little phrase for you. Often it's people that make us sick and it's also people that make us well. And if I want to be really healthy, the the social network I create around me is one of the largest aspects of that health. And I get that from the nature of God. And so if I want to have a good marriage, I look around and say, do I have anybody around me that has good marriages? If I want to re- be really good with my money, I look around me and I say, do I have people around me who are really good with their money? And if I won't create a social network that affirms the value or goal that I have, it is not likely that I'm going to reach the value or goal that I have. God is in community. And so we find both motivation and health when we stay in community. It's another thing I noticed about God in that trinity. The harmony of functional uniqueness. That all of us, like the body with all of its part, are unique. And you have a uniqueness that God champions. I was visiting with someone just recently and they were, they were explaining to me the nature of a job they once had and so I started asking questions about what it was about that job that, that really energized them. And, and the more we discussed it, the more the light came on that this, there was one aspect of their job, this was what I'm created to be and do. Functional uniqueness. And there's a third aspect to that nature of God. Willing self-surrender. 
The Trinity functions in a serving model. One of the highest levels of maturity is my intentionality to give my, myself away for something noble. And so that's incarnational. And we see that as we read, uh, read the shack. Number five, the expression of the adequacy of Christ. Now, here, I want you to catch this. You can't tell how good a team is unless they play somebody good. But sometimes Christians get in a culture where we actually, like, we kind of, we think we should be isolated. No, we should be insulated, but not isolated. If we isolate the gospel, it has no platform to demonstrate its power. Can I say that again for you? If we isolate the gospel, it has no power, no platform to demonstrate its power. And so I dive into the shack because it's dealing with themes that require an expression of the adequacy of Christ. And I want to hook this to number six, which is sometimes we function as if, if evil has more that actually good is more powerful than evil, but we sometimes function as if evil is more powerful than good. I have a theory about why a lot of kids that grow up in Christian homes don't, be, don't stay Christian. It comes out of years of working in, uh, in youth work and a lot, with a lot of churches. They're given ideas without a demonstration of the power of the gospel. They're given ideas without a demonstration of the power of the gospel. Ideas without a demonstration of power do not have enough force to invade your life, let alone your culture. The gospel has power, but it can't show itself if it's kept in isolation. It's got to get out there on the court. It can play in the bigs. The gospel has power. I was once uh, I was once elected to become a conference superintendent with about twenty six churches. I was living in a small town. Our kids loved that small town. They were doing well. They were in everything. Life was good. And uh, then I got this other job. It meant I had to move to the big city, Billings. <laughs> and uh, if you're a father and you pay attention to families and you got a thing where everything's working, it, it's a little... I went home from that meeting and I thought, I, I don't know. I don't know, Lord, this might be a good thing, but it doesn't look good to me. In the middle of a drought, our church was growing at 10% a year. We had just bought land and built a church debt-free in a farming culture in the middle of a drought. I, I thought, I, I don't know. And then some guy called me up. Derry, he says, I've been praying for you. I know this would be a tough choice with your kids in grade school and high school and you're not going to want to move them and 
I was just praying for you, and the God, God gave me a verse. Jeremiah 29, 11. I'm thinking, oh, yeah, some Christian has got a verse. <laughs> if I had a dollar every time. <laughs> so, all right, what's your verse? Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to be good to you and not to harm you. To give you a future and a hope. I said, this is a good verse. Thanks, thanks for calling. Now my kids could tell you what comes next. But let me interrupt the story by telling you that uh, when the prophet spoke to the people and said, all right, now you've got to choose between God, God Jehovah and the other gods. The Bible says the people said nothing because they were waiting for a demonstration of power to show them who was God. So let's go back to Jeremiah 29, 11. I, I am so shallow a believer that I thought, well, isn't that cute? And then, Jeremiah 29, 11 started showing up everywhere. I mean like ants that found there was sugar on the counter. Everywhere. We got a little letter from Billy Graham that was going to buy on TV, and they had a little thing that you put on your TV to remind you to watch it, and there's always a verse on it, the verse was Jeremiah 29, 11. I went down to participate in a service in another town, and the preacher decided he was going to preach on Jeremiah 29, 11. We got a card from someone saying they were praying for us, and on the bottom they wrote Jeremiah 29, 11. Somebody bought us a plaque to hang in our house. And there it was, Jeremiah 29, 11. We sent our kids off to Bible camp, and they called us, one of them, and said, do you know what's carved into my bunk? <laughs> Jeremiah 29, 11. <laughs> now, in the course of just a few weeks, Jeremiah 29, 11 showed up 11 times and individually to every member of my family. Now that didn't happen because I'm somehow super spiritual. But it did happen because if we have no demonstrations of power. All we have is ideas. And ideas will not carry the day. Good is more powerful than evil. If someone were to ask me what's one of the primary emotions that Christians seem to carry, I would say that after 40 years, it is fear. Fear of the culture, fear of other people, fear of ideas, fear of books. 
think, why in the world are we so afraid? This gospel, if it's true, has power. It must be allowed through our lives to interface with the world, with the culture, with other people. Number seven, because when I'm interfacing with a book like The Shack, when I'm willing to dialogue with someone else who might have an idea that's just a little different than mine, I'm actually treating them with respect. I'm treating them with respect. If everything about my faith is simply telling you what's right, convincing you what's right, if I'm never listening, E. Stanley Jones, one of the great missionaries of the 20th century, he was a missionary, a Methodist missionary in India. He was so convinced of the power of the gospel that in India he would create these round tables and he would invite people of all faiths to sit around one of these tables and they would have a discussion. And he always made sure that the Christians were in the minority. And he treated people of other faiths with great respect so influential was E. Stanley Jones that when World War II was looming on the horizon, other countries asked E. Stanley Jones to try to intercede with the Japanese in order to prevent the war. Today, there are thousands of people who are followers of Christ in India and descendants of those followers because of E. Stanley Jones, but one of the hallmarks of his life was his willingness to listen and to treat people who have a different view with respect. If you and I are talking, and I'm doing 98% of the telling, I'm not respecting you. Number eight, because relationships carry ambiguity. There's quite a bit of ambiguity in the shack. Get kind of into something, I don't know, is this really the way God is? Is this? Not. You know something? If sureness were that big a thing, I could have done a lot better job of writing the Bible than God did. If sureness is that big a thing, I traffic among church leaders all the time. They got all these different ideas, all these different perspectives on individual doctrines. How's Christ going to return? Well, in order to get that cleared up for us, God gives us the book of Revelation. Let's go on to another topic. <laughs> if God had wanted it clearer, he could have made it clearer. Couldn't have he? He leaves a lot of stuff ambiguous. There's a few things that aren't. There are not many people confused about Christ. With the gospel, boy, there's a lot of other stuff where there is a lot of un, 
sureness. But we like to put our ideas in order and get them all fitted together. And God says, maybe it's not about sureness as much as it is about relationship. Because, you know, in relationship, there's almost always ambiguity. Say, well, I want my marriage to be growing. Well, one might want to grow and one might not want to grow. Or one might want to grow faster than the other one might want to grow. But they're not going to tell you that. No, you've got to figure it out. So we all have code. This phrase means this. This silence means that. Relationships are kind of ambiguous. And even within the scope of one month where you think things are just going great and then you got a train wreck. What happened to today? Somebody didn't read their Bible. (laughs) Nah. If you're in relationship, there's ebb and flow. There's ambiguity. Do you know what cements a relationship? It's not the sureness. It's the love. So while I aspire for all three of our children... It doesn't matter what's going on in their life. I'm still cemented to them because of love. And so when I'm reading the shack, I'm reminded that there's a lot of things in life that are pretty ambiguous. How come God answers somebody's prayer and doesn't answer someone else? But what is not ambiguous in the shack is that wherever I am, God is there. So that at one point McKenzie says, I doubt it's a cry, I think probably more of a whimper. Says, Jesus, I just feel so lost. And Jesus says, I know McKenzie, but I'm here and I'm not lost. So you're not lost. He still didn't have all the answers. But what he did have was the awareness that the Christ of the universe was in it with him. And it mattered. Ninth ninth reason I'm reading the shack is because God is at work everywhere. Um, I think God speaks to us through the scriptures. But one of the one of the doctrines of the church of Jesus Christ is general revelation. And in general revelation, we mean that God is everywhere speaking all the time. So I started listing some places I've heard God talk. Like uh, like when I listen to Eva Cassidy, a British singer who died in her 30s from cancer. When she sings Over the Rainbow, 
I'll sit and weep about heaven. Think, well, Eva Cassidy's a secular singer and that's a secular song. Well, that's fine unless, unless I actually think God's everywhere. Speaking his truth, using all kinds of tools. And so every so often I put on Eva Cassidy and listen to her sing Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Or when I walk down the hallway of King's College Chapel in Cambridge, England, and stand under that delicate, delicate architecture that soars your eyes to heaven. And God speaks. Or, in fact, I'm not sure I've ever felt more joy than when I was listening on my iPod to Crocodile Rock by Elton John. Honestly, I just don't know what... I think it ought to be in the hymn books. I just... It, it just... My, I just think God must want us happy at least some of the time. Uh, and recently when my daughter and I went to the, uh, unusual, the unusual case of Benjamin Button listen to watch Brad Pitt and I listened to the silence in the theater as we all pondered our mortality that silence was as sacred as the silence in a church as we pondered our mortality in the, as a story carried us places we hadn't been thinking about one day in a small church on a back street in Italy to walk in and stand next to Michelangelo's Moses and touch the marble of his knee and look up into the fire of Moses' face. See, if, we, if we're not living like the Bible's a window and the gospel's everywhere and God's speaking. Then it's like going around turning off all the spigots in the house and all the heaters until we got one little space heater over in the corner that's giving us warmth. When God wants to be meeting us over and over, one place after another, to talk to us about his glory. So, that's why I'm reading The Shack. Because myth and story are great tools to communicate eternal truth. One day, uh, the Bible tells us a man was going to leave, and he, so he gave, his, gave money to his servants. And then he said to them, Occupy till I come. And what he was saying was, Hey, Here's some money. You stay engaged. This keeps me engaged with other people and with pain and with God. Why don't we set our things aside as we finish up tonight and uh, would you bow your heads with me?
their heads bowed, and we're not looking around, and nobody's going to embarrass you tonight, and we're, we're glad that you're here. But maybe you've been reading the shack, and it's been surfacing issues in your life. Perhaps there's some of us here tonight that we need to know God is present because we're crying out with Mackenzie. Jesus, sometimes I feel so lost. And Scripture tells us, Behold, I stand at the door, Jesus says, and I knock at that door. Wherever your door is tonight, whatever circumstance of life you're in, He knocks at that door and he invites you to open the door and invite him in. And you could do that tonight. You could say, Lord, this is where I'm at. This is the stuff I'm dealing with. I want to ask you to in. I'm opening the door of my life tonight. Would you come in? You can pray that right where you're at. Jesus, I'm opening the door of my life tonight. Right where I'm at. Would you come in? We think that's a big thing around here at Journey. Because no matter how lost you may feel, we know that God's not lost. And he's with you. And if you're praying that prayer, if you're asking the Lord into your heart tonight none of us looking around, would you just raise your hand up and say, I I prayed that tonight. I've asked Jesus in to right where I'm at. I opened that door. And uh, we're just going to wait a second. Yeah, right here in the the middle, in the back. Yeah, way in the back row. Anybody else? We don't want to miss you. If you've just prayed and asked the Lord into your heart this evening, invited them into the circumstances of your life. You just want to tell the Lord, thank you, Lord. I'm, I'm raising my hand to honor you. Anyone else? Father, thank you for meeting with us tonight. Thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for being so patient. For these who slip their hands up, we pray you'll rush grace to them and you'll be their help this point of need. In Jesus' name, amen.